This is the Decoding Obesity Podcast, where we simplify, demystify, and decode obesity, helping you lose weight and feel great. So gear up for a fascinating journey through this ever-evolving field, and let's see what we find. And please remember that the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice. Don't forget to visit our website, www.decodingobesity.com, for show notes and more info. And now, here's your host of the Decoding Obesity Podcast, Dr. Avishkar Sabarwal. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Decoding Obesity Podcast. Our eating habits are, in a way, such an integral part of our identity. All of us have specific likes and dislikes. But at what time do our likes turn into an addiction? Does chemistry of the food have a role to play in it? I did an episode on hyperpalatable foods and how they are designed to hijack our brains. Well, let's take a deeper dive into food addiction today. A little disclaimer here. Food addiction remains a highly controversial diagnosis in the field of medicine. You see, food is something that is necessary and not an option. This makes it difficult to define food addiction. Well, today I have Dr. Joan Iflin, who specializes in food addiction. Dr. Iflin is the Chief Executive Officer of Food Addiction Training, LLC. She received her PhD in Interdisciplinary Studies with a specialization in Addictive Nutrition from the Union Institute and University. She was the first chair of the Food Addiction Council for the American College of Nutrition. She is the author of the popular book, Sugars and Flowers, How They Make Us Crazy, Sick and Fat. She has been selected for her expertise by the Oprah Winfrey Network, Martha Stewart Wedding Magazine, Fortune Magazine, and U.S. News and World Report. She founded Victory Meals in Houston, Texas, which is one of the first prepared meal companies to provide abstinent meals. She is currently developing online approaches to recovery at www.foodaddictionreset.com and has a very active group called Food Addiction Education on Facebook, both of which we will be talking about with her. Listeners, I know this is a very interesting topic and we are going to have a great discussion on this. I'm sure you guys are going to love this. Please hit the subscribe button now to stay updated with the latest episodes. I have many more interesting episodes lined up. Welcome, Dr. Ifland. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. So, you know, this term food addiction is thrown around so loosely these days. But what exactly is food addiction? Well, it looks like every other drug addiction. So it's a drug addiction. It's, you were mentioning how hard it is to understand. It's an addiction that is hard to understand. But just like you divide liquids into alcoholic and non-alcoholic, you divide food into addictive processed foods and real foods. So the addictive processed foods are interpreted by the brain as if they were drugs. And the brain of a person who uses a lot of processed foods is doing the same thing as the brain of somebody who's addicted to drugs. And that means you have hyperactive centers in the reward part of the brain, you have hyperactive stress system, and you have hypoactive and underactive frontal lobe. So the frontal lobe is not able to put on the brakes because all the blood flow is going to the addicted neurons. It's just a very common, consistent brain condition. 
it's not really mysterious anymore because we have the brain imaging research to show us, oh, you have hyperactive addicted neurons, hyperactive stress pathway, hypoactive frontal lobe. It's a mental condition. So all of us have dislikes and we have our likes. We have, we have There are certain particular foods that you can eat any time of the day. So at what point in time does that become a food addiction? Okay, so the American Psychiatric Association for the last 50 years has been developing specific criteria to diagnose somebody with an addiction. In my doctoral work, for example, I took those diagnostic criteria for alcoholism and I validated them for overeating. So people are engaged in particular behaviors. You don't have to get a brain imaging study to find out you have an addiction. You can find out from specific behaviors. There are 11 of them. I can go through them if you'd like. Absolutely. I would love to know them. Yeah. Okay. So I wrote the the textbook for the field, and there are 11 chapters in the textbook, one on each one of these behaviors. And it's very well documented. There's a lot of evidence that these behaviors exist in overeating. They are unintended use, where you say, I'm going to have one, and then you eat the box, or I'm not stopping, and then you stop, or I'm going to eat clean today, and by 10 o'clock, you're at the vending machine. Number two is failure to cut back. We know that most, 70% of the U.S. is overweight or obese. And you can say all those people have failed to cut back. They would if they could. This is some of the evidence that we use to talk about prevalence. Is food addiction common? I think almost everybody has it to across a range of severity. Number three is time spent. So you're stopping for fast food. You're thinking about it when you're not eating it. You're in the kitchen back and forth. You're in the break room back and forth. You're at the vending machine back and forth. It just is taking a lot of time. Number four is cravings. People don't even know they have cravings because they've had them their whole lives. I stopped using sugar and flour the first week of January 1996 and coming up to the fifth anniversary. And and the craving stopped. But if you had asked me the day before, do you have cravings? I would have said no, because I have had them my whole life. My very first memory of my life is trying to manipulate an ice cream truck driver into giving me a free ice cream. <laughs> so I had cravings my, literally my whole life. I didn't know that you could not think about food between meals. That It was just amazing. So I think most people have cravings. Number five is inability to fulfill roles. You know, you know you're supposed to be able to get down on the floor with your kids, but you can't. You know, your joints hurt or you've got all this extra fat tissue and yet you're still overeating. The next one is trouble in relationships. You're too brain fogged. You're too tired. You're too craving. You want to go off and hide in the laundry room and whatever you hid there earlier in the day, and you just wish everybody would go to bed. And so there are troubles in relationships. Also, processed foods make people irritable and depressed. It's very hard to be in an enhancing relationship when you're irritable and depressed and anxious and shamed. You just don't want people to see you. And then there's time. Let's see. The next one is activities given up. 
So people are no longer going to events. They don't like their body shape. They would rather go home and eat. They're afraid to go to events because they're afraid that they will lose control over the food while they're there and be embarrassed. And then the last four are hazardous use. You know, you're pulling out of the fast food place and you're driving with your elbow while you are putting in all the fast food or you can't see your feet anymore and you're prone to tripping or you're out of balance because of the distribution of fat tissue in the body or you're brain fogged. We know that obese truck drivers, for example, have more accidents than non-obese truck drivers. And obesity isn't the only manifestation of processed foods. You can have an addictive person who's not obese. And then you get into uh, use in spite of knowledge of consequences. Everybody's got that. I shouldn't eat this one, <laughs> eat this once. And then there is tolerance. You're eating more of certain foods, particularly the addictive foods, than you were last year or five years ago. And then withdrawal. That when you stop using them, you get a headache or you get a stomach ache. Or you can turn this around and think about it a different way. That you're using food for reasons other than hunger. So if you're using it because you have a headache or because you're tired or because you have a stomach ache or because you are furious and you just want to stuff it down, that's withdrawal. You're avoiding withdrawal. That's not an eating-related problem. It's a drug use problem. So most people have between six is considered by the American Psychiatric Association a serious addiction. And that's really what I got out of writing the textbook is that most people have this seriously. They have it deeply. It requires a lot of time in recovery to get it to stop. Six or more, and most people have six or more. Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned that, you know, you quit sugar, what, 96, you said? Sugar and flour. Sugar and flour. So actually at one point in time, not anymore, but at one point in time, I did quit sugar. And I did see that difference because before that, I would crave the sweet things. Mm -hmm. I was always used to eating something sweet after every meal. Mm -hmm. But it stopped. After that, I did not even want to I mean, I couldn't care less if something sweet was present or not present. So I did notice that difference. And it's interesting that you mentioned this because I wrote a book at that point in time. And I did mention it in that also that you should actually just stop eating sugar. That's probably the first thing that you should do to kind of get towards a healthier lifestyle because mm -hmm. it is really addictive. And there have been studies in mice. I'm not sure if they're controversial or they're very well proven. But there were studies that they showed that sugar is as addictive as cocaine. Yeah, there are three of them. They're all rat studies, but there are three different studies showing that sugar is more addictive than cocaine. Yeah, it's more addictive than cocaine. So yeah, it's very interesting. Now, in this food addiction, is there a pattern that you see in terms of the types of food? For example, alcohol is alcohol, right? Cigarette mm -hmm. smoking is nicotine or cigar mm -hmm. nicotine. Do you see a pattern in what type of food types are involved? Yes. I have a whole chapter on the foods and the, what kind of evidence exists for those foods. Sugar is clearly the most researched. And it doesn't make any difference what kind of sugar, artificial sugar. They're all capable of hyperactivating the dopamine system in the brain. Flour will also give you a glucose high and a serotonin high. 
flour has gluten. Gluten has a natural morphine in it, gluteomorphine. And when you grind up the flour and you make it very absorbable, it gets into your system. It's concentrated enough to actually create an opiate high. That morphine is concentrated enough. And American wheat has a greater level of gluteomorphine gluten than wheat in other parts of the world. So flour and then excessive salt. This is research done at the Brain Institute in Florida, University of Florida, where they noticed that the morphine addicts were coming in for treatment and they would just take the top off the salt shaker and pour the salt on their food. Wow. So there's two studies. One, Another researcher in Turkey was able to show that salt use matches dsm 4 diagnostic criteria for alcoholism. So two good studies there. Processed fats, we've got a withdrawal study showing that people become irritable when they're withdrawing from fats. Then caffeine, of course. And then you have food additives. This all started when the tobacco industry came into processed foods. The tobacco industry was used to adding extra nicotine to cigarettes to make them more addictive. So we don't know. We really don't know what they're adding to the processed foods. And then dairy. Dairy is a substance that's designed to put a baby calf to sleep. It has got that much morphine in it. It's a naturally occurring. There are four kinds of casomorphine in dairy. So it's like a narcotic for baby cows. It doesn't have any place in our systems. Well, I mean, there are some studies that do say that, you know, consumption of low-fat dairy may be beneficial, may have some cardiovascular benefit in terms of your overall health. But in terms of food addiction, of course, I'm not the expert. So yeah, definitely. And I know that even cheese has a particular compound that makes you kind of crave more cheese. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. And it's interesting that, you know, sugar also acts as an analgesic because in children, if they're injured, you give them a lollipop they start feeling better. They don't feel the pain anymore. Mm -hmm. So it has a lot of other effects on our brain other than, you know, just feeling sweet on the tongue. Yeah. Oh, gosh. It's a drug. I think of it like crystallized alcohol. (laughs) So it's primarily what, from what I'm getting is it's primarily the processed foods that we're seeing, which have extra salt in them, extra sugar in them, and extra fat in them, that kind of that trifecta mm-hmm. is kind of making you more addicted to these foods. Mm-hmm. And that's what's leading to all of this. It's taking away from your processing power, so to say, from your prefrontal cortex, where you kind of understand what's going on and just kind of bypass that and go directly to your pleasure centers to kind of give you that pleasure and give you that high that you're looking for. Yes, there's really good research showing that the addicted neurons can release enough neurotransmitter that it travels directly over to the locomotion centers, the frontal lobe's never involved. If people describe this feeling like they're a robot and they're just being remotely controlled and they're going off, yes, your frontal lobe has gone offline. Yeah, I'm sure people have had this experience where they've bought something and it's typically quote-unquote junk food and they realize they afterwards they think like why did i buy this mm-hmm. i didn't out to buy this but why did i buy this and i'm not quite sure why i bought this so it's very interesting and to 
make matters worse it's actually also the marketing that goes on along with that oh that hijack our brain as well so you know you have one aspect of food addiction and on the other aspect is the marketing that's worsening the whole scenario of this food addiction that we're living with oh it's deliberate so i have an mba i took an mba 42 years ago from stanford so i'm very interested in business behavior i worked for a corporation for 5 years and i grew up my dad worked in a corporation for his whole career and we do see this very clearly there's something called the addiction business model i published a paper on it this year it's a model where you put you can hide addictive substances in the product like they hid sugar fat salt dairy all this additives caffeine in processed foods like they hid nicotine extra nicotine in cigarettes you advertise the heck out of it you put it everywhere you know they took out the the cigarette vending machines and they put in soda vending machines you buy it everywhere any time of day and it's cheap and then you focus on children so young age of onset it's the five yeah. a's of the addiction business model the tobacco companies transferred it from tobacco to processed foods yeah And in the mid 1980s they buy craft they buy nabisco they buy general foods and you see the obesity rate take off you see the saturday morning cartoon commercials for these foods go from 160 per morning to 560 in the space of 7 years and then within 10 years the obesity rate in children has gone from 10 to 15% it's pretty clear yeah and you know the worst part is that it's very difficult to consciously try and get away from it because if you go to the grocery store almost everything has sugar in it 99%. has this trifecta in it not even just sugar i don't want to say just sugar but has this trifecta in one form or the other mm-hmm. you'll find it it is so difficult to get away from this well you need training so one of the things i realized at the end of writing the textbook is that would be the next chapter in my life I would be focused on translating this research into online services because what you see is for a severe addiction you would normally send someone to residential treatment you cannot do that with processed food addiction because the home is a trigger right so if you go away and you get your recovery as soon as you come home the brain goes is triggered back into the addicted oh we know this place this is where we binge this is where we use sugar this is where we hide and nobody goes into a bar or a bakery and sits down and in public eats a dozen donuts they go into a bar and drink themselves to oblivion but they won't eat in public they won't do that kind of volume eating in public it's shameful and so they do it at home and the home is a big trigger they spend $50,000 they go to residential treatment they come home and boom they relapse right it's a big waste so i knew that the services had to be provided at home i turned in the manuscript in the middle of 2017 and then at the beginning of 2018 i learned about zoom and we put our <laughs> services on zoom and suddenly we had this incredible success the people were getting control of their food what you had to persuade them to do is you really need to come in for 2 hours a day or 4 hours a day 
We're just about to start to offer five live meetings a day around the clock. We're all around the world now. Wow. I think we're in 17 countries around the world. So, yeah, the longest gap between meetings, it's a seven-hour gap oh, wow. in the evening. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I've actually never thought of it that way that, yeah, at home can be a big trigger for people. So, you know, they associate and we know that with any addiction, you have to get rid of the triggers. Mm-hmm. Now, do you see a particular pattern in terms of things that can precipitate this? I'm not talking about the foods per se, but certain behavioral patterns or certain things that have gone on in people's lives to make them sort of more prone to be on the higher end of uh, food addiction. Yes. So one incredible finding, and it still is mostly a rat finding, is that drugs activate a particular stress pathway in the brain. It's called the CRF pathway. It stands for corticotropin-releasing factor. It releases a neurotransmitter that travels to the adrenal glands and releases adrenaline. So people, when that happens, they're intertwined with the addicted neurons and they will aggravate the addicted neurons and the person finds themselves eating. You know, blood flow has left the frontal lobe. They're not in control of their behavior. So stress is a big precipitator of loss of control. We spend a lot of time online talking about stress. We give our communities called the Addiction Reset Community, ARC, the ARC. We give them lots of exercises to do to stop stress. You can actually train neurons. The same way you train a neuron to learn a language, what you want when you're learning a language is you want to look at the building, if you're learning French, And instead of the word building come to mind, you want the word bâtiment to come to mind. You go to France, you're triggered by by hearing French around you. And so you're triggered into that part of the brain and you look at a building and instead of thinking building, you think bâtiment. So we're using the same technique to retrain addicted neurons that when they see processed foods, they used to say yummy and now they say dope sick. So that is that's but it takes hours and hours and hours because these are addicted neurons that have been trained to think yummy. It's really since birth, you know, 50% baby formula, sugar. It's a very, very deep addiction, which is why it takes hours and hours. And then you remember that right outside the virtual doors of the ark is the food industry. And as soon as you stop getting, you know, we call it arc messaging. As soon as you stop getting that and you go back out, you're going to get the food industry messaging and the addiction will come straight back. Right. We have set this up. Everything about it is meant to be a lifelong association with the arc. Yeah, it's it's very difficult because of the messaging that's so prevalent everywhere you go. It's so, so difficult. Mm -hmm. Now, you were talking about, you know, even sugar being present in baby formula. And, you know, this kind of led me to think and wonder, just like, you know, some people are more predisposed genetically to have, say, suffer from alcoholism. For example, somebody has a family history of alcoholism, so they suffer from alcoholism. Do we see something like this in food addiction? There is research showing that there's an anomaly in the DNA. It's not my field, but it's at the TAC 
A1 allele. Capital T-A-Q, capital A1 allele. And it looks the same in drug-addicted people as in processed food-addicted people. However, however, it takes environment to turn on one of those genes. So you see this, you know, pre-tobacco presence in processed food. All right, we've got about a 45% overweight and obese rate. And then you have the 20 years in which tobacco is coming in and starting the advertising and the messaging. And then you end up with about a 70% rate. So right. nothing happened to the gene pool in that 20-year period. It's a very short period. But what did happen is this addiction business model coming into play. What did happen was that the five A's of tobacco addiction marketing and business practices were transferred over to processed foods. That's what happened. And the presence of high fructose corn syrup. High fructose corn syrup came on the market. It's much, much cheaper than sugar. And suddenly tobacco had their formula. It has to be cheap enough to be bought often enough to be addictive. So it's not a genetic issue. You can overcome any genetic, uh, not any. There's some that you can't overcome. But most of them you can overcome or change through environmental messaging. Yeah, a lot of them are influenced by environment. But, you know, I was just curious that sometimes alcoholism runs in the family. Somebody's Mm -hmm. father had it. Mm -hmm. And again, that's a very complex issue because there are a lot of social things, social aspects to alcoholism if somebody's father, mother, whoever suffering from alcoholism, that social aspect of it as well, and along with the genetic aspect of mm-hmm. it. But I was just curious if, you know, that translates to food addiction. Well, you know, there, there's a genetic issue, but what I think is more important in the development of this addiction, that those alcoholic parents are not providing clean food to the children. Right. What's more likely is that the children are, because this is just Part of being addicted, having addicted parents, is the children are neglected. The parents are just not available. Right. And so they're much more likely to throw a pizza at the children or bring them fast food or pop something out of a box and put it into the microwave. It's unlikely that there is roast chicken and green beans and brown rice on that plate. So there's that issue. What what was available in the household? A lot of media, likely, you know, just keep those children engaged in media because we're busy drinking. And then there's also trauma. So alcoholics are prone to violence. And trauma permanently activates that stress pathway. You have these permanent hyperactive stress brain cells And so what are they doing? Well, they're reaching over and vibrating those addicted neurons. So it's, yes, there's a correlation for sure, but I don't think it's just genetic. I don't. I agree with you. I mean, it has to do, it's more of the environment than the genes because Mm -hmm. like you said, the genes didn't change in 20 years. The environment drastically changed. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely more of the environment. But, you know, people sitting at home after listening to you, I'm scared. I am suffering from food addiction probably. And I think most of us are, but how can they do? Okay. What do people do? Okay. So 
I know this is not what anybody else is saying, but working on the cueing, working on the triggering, working on the messaging in your environment. A lot of processed food addicted people are suffering from isolation. They're suffering from loneliness because they're being rejected on the basis of their body shape or their imagined body shape. They might have a perfectly normal body shape, but they're so obsessed with body shape that they just can't believe that their body shape is normal. So you have a lot of distortion around people's perception of their bodies and they isolate. And they don't want somebody to, to see them eat a gallon of ice cream. So they're at home, they're addicted to a TV, et cetera. So that's highly stressful. And that's a big source of relapsing and loss of control. Remember, stress activates the addiction. So this is why it's really important to get into not just any group, but a group that's really patient, a group that knows what it's doing in terms of reprogramming addicted neurons, restoring self-esteem, restoring relationships, restoring respect and love for the body, uh, resolving medical conditions. We don't resolve medical conditions, but they need to be able to go to their health professional. I tell people, go to Amazon and print out the book page for processed food addiction. It's published by a textbook company, the RC Press. Take it to your health professional and ask for their support. You can't say it doesn't exist anymore. And the book has 2,000 citations in it. It's just page after page after page of bibliography. So, you know, I heard you say it's controversial. It's not controversial to me. Well, what I meant by controversial was in terms of being defined as a diagnosis in DSM-5 or DSM-4. Yes, true. But the evidence that hyperpalatable foods hijack your brains is pretty clear. Mm-hmm. So that aspect of it is clear. The problem is where you draw the line is where the problem is. Where does the addiction part begin and normal eating pattern end mm-hmm. is where, where I was saying the problem was. But yeah, I'm completely you know in agreement with you. In fact, I did an episode some time ago on these hyperpalatable foods and how they Super. change our brain chemistry. Super. Yeah, so... There was another episode I wanted to actually mention over here was I also did an episode on mindful eating. Mm-hmm. And I think that also may be able to help because it forces you to actually think about your action rather than your brain hijacking the food or the cues hijacking your brain to directly act. It forces you to think as to why you're doing that action. And that can sometimes break that link and help you. What are your thoughts? It can be an element in a comprehensive program. So, yeah, we teach meditation, but I wouldn't dream of telling somebody, oh, just meditate. This is a vicious, deeply rooted addiction. You're facing off against these PhD, you know, psychology of marketing scientists who are going to provoke you every time you walk into the grocery store. It's not going to do the job. This is a much, much bigger job than mindfulness can address. Intuitive eating, none of that is big enough. It's a severe mental condition. It's like you wouldn't say to an alcoholic, you know, just really think carefully about your drinking. No, you're going to like get the heck out of the bars, get into AA. If you need to go to two meetings a day. 
a study of the big book, get a sponsor, get in a group. You can't see those drinking buddies anymore. It's a comprehensive program. But even AA was designed for alcoholics, middle-aged white guys in the suburbs of Colorado. It's not a strong enough program for processed food addiction. The right level of treatment is really what you would call intensive outpatient treatment, where you would go to the hospital all day, Monday through Friday. And that is actually what we have recreated. And we have people who've tried all the eight dozen other things. And finally, once we're able to persuade them to come to at least two video chats or a conference call every day, day in, day out, come to three on stressful days, come to four if you have the time. We're training ARC managers. So we have the chat and then we have a study group afterwards. As of next week, we will have eight hours out of every 24 where people can get on Zoom or a conference call, get eye-to-eye contact, engage mirror neurons, stop identifying with mainstream culture and start identifying with a group of clean eaters. You said something very smart at the beginning. You said eating is a big part of our identity. So you've got to be in a group of people enough hours a day to persuade your brain, this is my tribe, and I eat like this tribe. I've eaten like my family tribe, my Main Street tribe for my whole life. But if you spend enough hours listening to people, listening to how their day went, how they are, what they're experiencing, your brain will start to identify with that group. You can't really reasonably expect to eat differently. I wrote that down because I like the way you said that so much. You can't expect to eat differently from all the people around you for the rest of your life. The brain just will not let you do that. It wants to identify, conform with a group of people because for 7 million years of brain development, being in a tribe, being accepted by a tribe, doing what the tribe was doing was the difference between life and death. Right. If you weren't alive, you wouldn't live. So we're very, very tuned in. That brain will just keep bugging you. You got to be like these people. You got to be like these people. You're going to die if you're not like these people. So you got to be in a group of people who are healthy. So that as your brain does that primitive conformance drive thing, you're conforming to healthy behavior. So when do people actually reach out to you? What makes them realize? Is there a time when people say, yeah, maybe I do have food addiction? Or is there something that somebody points out to them that reach out to you for help? Because, you know, people, like you said, a lot of us suffer from food addiction. Just we may have more than the six out of the 11 points that you mentioned. But at what time do people realize? Because not everybody knows about those 11 points. But what do people feel when they're reaching out to you? They feel the insanity. They feel the mental illness. They want to stop desperately. And it's it's shifted. I think what you're asking is really interesting. So I've been in this field for 25 years. 25 years ago, the only reason people came in was because they had a weight issue. But addictions are progressive. They get worse over time. You put dieting into the mix, which has woken up this very primitive brain food-seeking part of the brain. That what people call the binge brain. So you have this really virulent 
you have the addicted neurons, you have these hyperactive food-seeking neurons, but the addicted neurons are telling the food-seeking neurons, oh, yeah, take those drugs over there. That's what you were looking for. It's just so pervasive in the brain that now, 25 years later, what people are seeking relief from is the obsession, just they can't think about anything other than processed foods, and the behavior. They don't want to hide in the laundry room, you know, stuffing down an entire cake. They don't want to do that anymore. So they hear us. They don't want to stop at three fast food places between work and home. It drives people crazy. It's the feeling of just sheer insanity. It's the fight between the frontal lobe. I don't want to be doing this. And the addicted neurons, you're doing it. It's horrible. It's horrible. And that's what they want to have stopped. Once you stop that, weight can be whatever you want it to be. Your relationships get better. You're not lonely anymore. You're not craving anymore. You're not in pain because you know processed foods are inflammatory. So you're moving out of a lot of bad stuff. And people Uh hear it and they say, oh, you think my back pain would go away? Or do you think my diabetes would go away? And it's like, man, let's get those processed foods out. Let's get this stress thinking out. Because stress thinking alone can cause disease. It diverts blood flow to muscles. And, you know, let's get some blood flow going back to your organs and the rest of your brain. Let's restore cognitive function and see if anything's left. If you give it enough time, like years, a lot of times... There's nothing left. There's no distress left. They're just incredibly happy. So there is light at the end of the tunnel. Oh, absolutely. Now that we know how to get enough, the tobacco companies use something called surround marketing. You know, first they addict, they hide addictive substances in their products. They addict the neurons in the reward centers, and then they provoke it all the time. It's amazing. Surround marketing. So we're offering surround messaging, positive recovery messaging. You can get it 20 because we record our conference calls. You can get into our archives and always listen to a podcast. It's not technically a podcast. It's a recording of our conference call. So you can surround yourself with this recovery messaging, which is why people are sent to intensive outpatient treatment because they're going to get consistent messaging for the entire day. Well, oh, that's very fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us about this textbook and how it came about. And um, you've already shared the online program, but if you want to share more about it, how can people get in touch with you and uh, how do they enroll into this program? And what are the other resources in case, you know, that your program, you said it's available in 17 countries, but places where it's not available, how can people seek help? Anywhere somebody can get on the internet, they can get to our program. We have people translating into Spanish and Portuguese. So we're spreading. The textbook came about, it was it's kind of an amazing story. I, one of my doctoral committee members and just a wonderful man, Harry Proust, he writes textbooks. He's at Georgetown Medical School. He's the founder of the American College of Nutrition. I think he tells me he didn't do it, but I think he did. He suggested it to CRC Press. And they just, they came to me and said, would you write the textbook for the field? 
my dad had died and he left me enough money that I could actually sit and write a textbook. It took three years. Wow. And my stepmom, who's Belgian, lived in Cincinnati, where Union Institute is and where I grew up. My dad just asked, he said, please see Luz through the end of her life. And then, boom, came this contract. I said, well, this is perfect. So I moved back to Cincinnati. I took care of her. I mean, she wasn't under my care, but I looked after her for three years. I turned in the manuscript. She died three or four months later. Uh, I moved to Seattle to be where my younger daughter is, and it took three years. CRC Press thought it would take a year and a half. It took three years. I looked at probably 8,000 studies. I picked out 2,000 studies. I wrote about 70% of the book, and I got, I just, I had to get the experts in the field. So Nicole Avina is in here, Eric Stiles, Pamela Peake. Harry Pruess, my doctoral committee member, Marianne Marcus, who is the expert in mindfulness and addictions. She's got a chapter in here and we got it done. We got it done. But in the middle of writing this, I did realize that the key, the thing that I had been missing in the prior 20 years or so was the severity of the addiction. And once I knew it was a severe addiction and that classical treatment would call for residential treatment, which didn't work for food addiction, then I knew I had to provide the equivalent of intensive outpatient. That's the next level. If you have a severe addiction and you can't go to residential, you go to intensive outpatient programs. So that was our goal when we got into Zoom our goal was to present, to provide the equivalent of an all-day program. Well, we're on for seven days a week, and it's working, finally. The hard part is to persuade people that they actually do need to come in at least two hours a day. You know, I say to people, well, we have four hours, and then like four hours a month? No, four hours a day. <laughs> <laughs> It's hard to pull people off the weight loss model. You know, the weight loss model says, oh, if you have heroin addiction and you're emaciated because heroin has zero calories, so that addictive substance, it suppresses natural food seeking and processed foods suppress natural food seeking. It's called a picky eater. You've got an eight-year-old who won't eat any real food. Well, that's because the processed food addiction has suppressed natural food seeking. So... Anyway, it works. People have never had control of their food. If we can get them to come to two hours a day of programming, gradually, gradually, gradually. We also understand that lapsing is normal and it takes a long time. You know, however, you're making progress because the days of normal controlled eating get longer and longer. Your periods of lapsing get shorter and shorter. It takes a long time. It could take years. And then you have to expect that there might be a day in which you have stress and fatigue and a lot of queuing, and you might pick something up. It's no more interesting than a skin knee. It's going to hurt. You're going to just come in. We're going to put our arms around you. We're going to say, I'm so sorry. This is such a wicked addiction. And really do get some rest and put some ice on the headache. 
So it's a very deeply compassionate program. People have been blamed for having this addiction. They've been humiliated because they can't get control of their food. They've been re-traumatized in support groups because they're not the right body shape or, you know, they're being fired by sponsors because the sponsor doesn't have a clue about how to support somebody through what could be a a multi-year process of gradually having longer periods of abstinence and shorter periods of lapsing. So pretty exciting. I got to tell you, it's very exciting. I'm listening to you. It's very interesting because I haven't heard of a program for food addiction like the one that you're describing, that like the one that you have. So how does this program go in terms of, is there an initiation phase or a maintenance phase, or is just basically constant queuing about the right habits? No. So we made it affordable. It's just jam-packed all day long, every day. We have programs on holidays. The, the addiction never rests. We never rest. You know, we're constantly, we're with our members fighting off these cravings. So it's $59 a month, and that's something that we always save our members $59 at least on the food, the medical expenses, the over-the-counters, the, the random shopping. I mean, there I counted up one day, there are 40 ways in which we save people money. I think the biggest thing we do in terms of money is we reduce the fear of a, a medical crisis that will then bring on a financial crisis. Because if you're eating clean, all the major expensive bankruptcy kind of medical crises are all diet related. They're all coming out of processed foods. So the, the diabetes and the heart disease and the stroke and all that, those are diet related diseases. And we see blood work numbers head straight towards normal pretty darn quickly once you get the processed foods out. It's not fat tissue causing those problems. It's the processed foods. So the cool thing about this, unlike smoking, when you give up processed foods, you start feeling better incredibly. Your blood work numbers start getting better like right away within weeks, sometimes within days. So you get these really cool rewards. You know, the depression is lifting. The anxiety is going straight down. You feel calm. You're able to make decisions. Your memory comes back. It's like, it's really rewarding. So people do, we're we're training our people how to identify all these benefits and make sure that the person, our member, knows that they're coming directly out of giving up the processed foods. We see research showing that the more you understand about the consequences, the more likely you are to stick with the program. It's incredibly fun to do what we do because people have been told you're going to have this for the rest of your life. Your feet are going to hurt for the rest of your life. And then six weeks later, they're not hurting anymore because the inflammation (laughs) has gone down. So, yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating, yeah. We have that level of service, and then we're going to introduce a more intense level which will be more like in the $500 a month range, $497 a month. Just people who need that extra level of service. Sure. So that we're going to call it a concierge level of service. The basic $59 a month 
And then we can quote that in a lot of different currencies around the world. People don't have to sure. pay us in dollars. We have members in Canada, the U.S., Mexico, Colombia, uh, Australia, Russia, China, Hungary, Austria, South Africa, U.K., Wales, Ireland. Yeah, <laughs> wow. we're everywhere. That's amazing. That's amazing. This was really fascinating. This is eye-opening for me because I never knew that such a service existed. Thank you. For people, you know, and this is really, I think it's going to be very helpful for our listeners. Uh, listeners, as we're nearing the end of the year and what a year this has oh been. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I have some very exciting episodes lined up, which will set you up for success in the next year. Mm -hmm. And you do not want to miss these. And I need a little help from you. I want to hear from you. I need to know if the content that I'm presenting is of value to you. Please tell me if you have been able to implement any of the strategies I have discussed and have they worked for you. I would appreciate if you could spend just a few minutes to write a comment, leave a review, or just say hi. Let me know if there are any specific topics that you want me to cover. If you are finding this podcast valuable, I think what's going to be really helpful is that if you can share it with people who you think will find this useful. That's all we have time for today. Thank you so much, Dr. Eflin. This oh, has been an you. enlightening episode and this was so great. And thank you everyone for tuning in. I'll see you all next time. Thank you. You've been listening to the Decoding Obesity Podcast. Please remember, the information in this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are solely of the host and his guests and do not constitute medical advice. Views and opinions on this show do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of any organization. And that brings us to the end of the show. Thank you so much for listening in. Don't forget to visit our website, www.decodingobesity.com, for show notes and more info. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe on your preferred podcast listening platform. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time. <laughs>